Who was that masked man? Was the cry of the townsfolk often when the masked former Texas Ranger, known as the Lone Ranger, with his friend and colleague, the Native American Tonto, would save the town from the bad guys. Or you can think of the man with no name who spoke little and shot very well. Most people love a good mystery man story where the protagonist is a man that comes out of a mysterious background to save the day. Many people also love a good war story with stories of courage, sacrifice, and especially victory on the part of the good side, the good people. Beloved, before we come to our text this morning, we will, where in the text, we will meet a man of mystery. We want to go back to a world event, the backdrop of a world war. Uh, In fact, the first recorded world war some 4,000 years ago. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 is the only chapter, just by way of interest, in chapters 12 through 22 of Genesis where God does not directly speak to Abraham. It's a chapter of action. And the storyline is simple. It's the story of four powerful eastern kings uh, led by a man named Kedorlaomer, who was the king of Elam, which is a part of the territory part of Mesopotamia that now would be part of modern-day Iraq and Iran. And Kedorlaomer led three other kings who went up through Mesopotamia, up around the top of the Fertile Crescent, with Saudi Arabia down below it, and then came down through the Transjordan all the way into the Negev, basically making war with five kings from the west. You'll see that even if you look at verse 9, where you see at the end of chapter 14, verse 9 of Genesis, four kings against Five. That is the backdrop. And in essence, the four kings of the east devastated the forces of the five kings from the west. They swept through the land. They destroyed and plundered. Everything looked good from their perspective until they committed the colossal mistake of taking a man captive, a man named Lot, who happened to be the nephew of a man named Abraham. And by the way, in this sermon, I'm going to say Abraham. At this point in Genesis 14, he's still named Abram. His name hasn't been changed to Abraham. But since the author of Hebrews refers to him as Abraham, that's good enough for me. So if you look at verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. Those are the four kings of the east where things were looking good. But verse 12, they also took Lot Abram's nephew and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. That was their mistake because God ordered this event in in part to insert Abraham right into the middle of this first world war. And in verses 13 through 16, Abraham puts his life on the line. It puts the life of 318 trained men of his on the line to go and rescue his nephew Lot. In verse 13, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. And by the way, that's the first appearance of the word Hebrew in the Bible. Now, he was living, Abram was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshtal and brother of Anar. And these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
So what had happened was Abraham had taken time away from his shepherding, time away from his business, time away from his marketplace, and had trained these men to fight because he knew that they were surrounded by enemies. He knew they were surrounded by bad people who would do bad things. And what is interesting when we read this, Abraham, Abraham, even though he was in his 80s, he didn't just strategize and direct. He fought himself. And basically, he becomes a general in his 80s and wins World War I. Verse 15 He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. And it's at this point in the narrative of Genesis 14 that Abraham meets two kings. He meets the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. It's interesting, yesterday, morning, Rob and Pam Provost were having fellowship with David and Alicia Eli uh, over at Santan Mall, and I went and crashed the party and interrupted and went in, and they were telling me that they were sharing their stories back and forth, and I guess Rob was commenting to David and Alicia of God's amazing providence in bringing them to Santan Bible Church, and then remembering how God brought my beloved Margie and me and my children to Santan Bible Church. And at the broader level, how God brought each and every one of you providentially to form this local body of Santan Bible Church. How God ordered the events to make us who we are. Well, beloved, in a very unique way, God orchestrated these events some 4,000 years ago. He ordered human history in this world conflict, even with the rising and falling of kings, to bring about this encounter that we see in verse 17 and especially in verses 18 through 20, so that you and I would be studying this in Gilbert, Arizona, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Now, with that, we'll come back. You can put your thumb there or a little, uh, uh, however you want to find your way back to Genesis 14, but let's go to the passage that we'll be preaching on this morning primarily, which is Hebrews chapter 7. Now, when we open up chapter 7, the first words we see are for this Melchizedek. Now, we've already seen this is the fourth appearance out of eight appearances of Melchizedek in Hebrews chapters 5 through 7. We've already encountered Melchizedek back in chapter 5 verse 6, chapter 5 verse 11, and then chapter 6 verse 20. And what had happened was the author, the pastor, author, preacher had come up to this particular topic and came very close. Then he backed off for a while. He relaxed in a sense. He dealt with a pastoral concern he had surrounding the congregation from chapter 5 verse 11 through the first part of chapter 6 verse 20 before picking this back up again. And this is because, if you know it or if you were here before, he had told the congregation that I want to tell you about this man, Melchizedek, but you're not ready. You've become dull of hearing. You're accustomed to and used to milk and not solid food. And you may know, or if you're here before, that joyfully I have said that you, Santan Bible Church, my beloved Santan Bible Church, are not dull of hearing. You are not in need only of milk. We all are, of course, in need of the milk of the truth of God's word and of the meat of the deeper truths of God's word. So 
We, by God's grace and mercy, aren't dull of hearing as the original audience was. But at the same time, we realize on this side of eternity, we always need to approach these deep, rich, sublime truths with humility. And with that in mind, I want to give you a quote from an excellent commentator on Hebrews, Pastor William Newell. This is what he said. He said, quote, We need to approach this subject with earnest prayer for light and for wisdom from heaven. For is it not true of practically the whole church, at least in some sad degree, that we have become dull of hearing and have come to need milk and not solid food, end quote. So, beloved, again, as we approach this rich topic that the author is now picking up and going to tell the original audience, and God is going to tell us what he wanted to tell earlier, we do it with a heart of humility. Beloved, listen as I read the word of God. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now, observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men, literally dying men, receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, beloved, this is the word of God that is read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, I read all ten verses where the first ten verses of Hebrews 7, the author focuses on the man Melchizedek. He will, as he goes on from there in the rest of the chapter, bring this rich background and his exposition of what takes place in Genesis 14 and point towards Christ. But in 1 through 10, again, he's focusing on Melchizedek. What we're going to do this morning is really just cover about the first verse and a half of the first two verses because we are, in one sense, we're at the center of this sermonic epistle to the Hebrews in terms of the length of the book. And most certainly, we are at the very nerve center of this book, of this great defense and this great argument and this great instruction of the superiority of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ as the ultimate high priest. And what we see in the first two verses are two exalted offices. The exalted office that this man Melchizedek had, the exalted office of king and the exalted office of priest. Now, we need to understand this, something that the original Jewish, the believing Jewish audience would have clearly understood, that in 
the old covenant in the Levitical priesthood, in the Aaronic priesthood that God had established for the nation of Israel, the national priesthood, those two offices of king and priest were separate and never should the twain or shall the twain meet. And in fact, anyone that tried to assume both offices would be met with severe penalty. For example, you can think of the first king of Israel, Saul, that in 1 Samuel 13, Saul took it upon himself to assume the priestly offices. And God's judgment came swiftly on him by virtue of the prophecy of Samuel, prophesying God's judgment and displeasure for King Saul trying to take that role upon himself. Or perhaps a lesser known one, if you turn to 2 Chronicles 26, we'll read the account of King Uzziah. And King Uzziah, in a similar fashion, took the role of priest upon himself. We pick it up in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26. But when he, Uzziah, became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. You could just tell in his heart, who do you think you are, O priest, to speak to me, the king, that way? And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. So, beloved, clearly God's judgment poured out on this man that had the audacity to take on the role of priest when he had already been appointed the office of king. So, All that to understand that when we come to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, God is saying to you, come meet the priest king Melchizedek. And we'll see in this incredible chapter, even in these first two verses, as an exposition of Genesis 14, something mysterious. This man of mystery, who is Melchizedek? We see something momentous with magnificent meaning for you and for me and we see something marvelous and what the author does is in the first verse and a half he just basically appeals to the historical facts of what took place in Genesis 14 of answering who he was and what he did and then in the second part of verse 2 through the rest he goes into an extended exposition of what it means for you and for me even today so our text again begins this Melchizedek So who is he? Uh, Who is this Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews brings here? He was a believing Canaanite in the land of Canaan, in the land that God had promised to Abraham. He was there even before Abraham had entered into the land. And beloved, 
through history, through biblical history, and through extra-biblical history, God always has a remnant. And this shadowy depiction of even Christ within the pages of Scripture is a picture of a faithful, believing remnant, of a man who we are told was a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek was a real man living at that time whom God saved. He was living in Canaan and worshiping God again before Abraham even got there. He appears, you know, when we think of the importance of people in Scripture, very often we would say, well, the really important people appear very often. Abraham, for example, appears some 230 times in the pages of Scripture. Moses appears around 833 times David appears some 1,080 times. Melchizedek appears 10 times. He appears once in Genesis 14, then not until 1,000 years later, all of a sudden, and that's just in three verses in one chapter, and then 1,000 years later, King David writes one verse, Psalm 110, verse 4, where he references him. And then another 1,000 years later pass before the author of Hebrews brings us to where we're at here in chapter 5, verse 6, and forward. This man of mystery appears suddenly and mysteriously. He appears as if from nowhere in the pages of 14 and then disappears from the pages of history and scripture. And even as I think of that, weak-minded liberals try to say that the Bible is an agglomeration of inclusive efforts of people that have just tried to stitch together little truisms and platitudes and and, uh, self-help and things to appease to the masses. Beloved, when you understand the significance of something like Melchizedek jumping across millennia, it takes far more faith to believe that this was just stitched together by people than to believe that the Bible is what it truly is, which is the divine inspired word of God, the inerrant word of God, the infallible word of God. So with that, beloved, let's look at the first exalted office of the man Melchizedek, namely he is a king. And in fact, the author wants us to make sure we understand this because In these first two verses, the author tells us four times that he was a king. He was a king and he was a priest. This is, again, a marriage of king and priest. And even when we look at the kind of king he was, it's also a marriage of righteousness and peace. He is, Melchizedek is, the king of righteousness and king of peace. Uh, First is the king of righteousness, Melchizedek by virtue of his very name. Now, when we think of names, uh, names in our culture have some level of meaning. I've shared before, all three of my children have names that mean something to my beloved Margie and I. But even far more so in the ancient Near East world, and especially in the Hebrew culture, names had very significant meaning. They described the identity of someone, the role of people, and even very often, especially in the biblical record, when they're named or renamed, the very nature of the person. So we are introduced to him here as Melchizedek. Uh, the name Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words, Malak which is king, and Sedek, which is righteousness. So by the very nature of his name, that's what it means. But then in verse 2, the author says, he was, first of all, king of righteousness by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now, 
The original Hebrew audience, I think, surely would have understood Melchizedek coming from those two, but the author puts us in here just to make sure they don't miss it. And for any Gentile believers, at least under the inspiration of God, that would come to it afterwards. And by the way, if you're interested, the Greek word translated as translation here is a Greek word hermeneuo, from which we get the English word hermeneutics, which is the rules of study of Scripture. So, for example, if you're going to take advantage and be blessed by uh, David's uh, teaching class coming up, I think, in a couple Sundays that Josh announced, when he talks about hermeneutics, that's where the word comes from. But let us come back on here. The main point here, beloved, is righteousness. God is righteous. You and I are not by nature righteous, by birth nature. We have a sin problem. We miss the mark. We fall short of God's standard of perfect, holy righteousness. For example, Paul in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the problem that we see all the way from the Garden of Eden and forward is how can an unrighteous man, how can an unrighteous woman, an unrighteous child stand in the presence of the perfectly righteous? And that is at the very heartbeat of the gospel message of the good news. That stands at, for example, the forefront of what the Apostle Paul was bringing out to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3, where in the first seven verses of Philippians chapter 3, Paul rehearsed his pedigree, his CV, his resume of human accomplishments to try to earn one's way of salvation. But then the Apostle Paul breaks out into the beautiful truth that what he needed is what all humans need is a righteousness that is not of our own, a righteousness that comes from outside. Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, watch this, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul was saying he needed an alien righteousness, a righteousness that came from outside of himself, not a righteousness that was infused with some kind of little vestige of righteousness he had his own, but a righteousness that was imputed to his account that came all the way from the outside is the same message as Paul gave to the immature church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 21 where you read the words he made him God the father made the son in his humanity who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him where God treated Christ on the cross as though he lived my sinful, wicked life, even though he didn't, so that when God looks at me, he sees the perfect, sinless, obedient, righteous life of Christ as though I lived it, even though I didn't. That is the gospel message. That is what is at the center of this identification of this man, Melchizedek, some 4,000 years ago as the king of righteousness. But then... There's the second kingship that we see here, which is the king of peace. And we see this from two elements, the location 
of where the king was from and the interpretation. And he is the king of Salem. That's how we read it. And by the way, let's go back to Genesis 14. So if your thumb's getting uh, you know, sore from holding the place, you can go back there for a moment. And we'll read the encounter, the original encounter that the author here is bringing out for us. We'll pick it up in verse 17 to set the stage. This is after Abraham's great victory. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat, that is the king's valley. But then all of a sudden it's interrupted, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. So, beloved, he describes him as the king of Salem. And by the way, this is, of course, Genesis is the book of first. It's the book of beginnings. And in Genesis 14, what we see here, this is the first mention of the city of Salem, which is the same as the city of Jerusalem. Salem, from Shalom, peace, is the name. And we know from Psalm 76, verses 1 and 2, that this Salem, and historically we understand this as well, is the very city of Jerusalem. Psalm 76, verse 1, God is known as Judah, in Judah. His name is great in Israel, and his tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. So the location of this king, of the man Melchizedek, is Salem, the city of God, the city, what would become the city of David, what will become Mount Zion. And in fact, this is also the location of Mount Moriah, where in Genesis 22, when God commands Abraham to take his only begotten son Isaac and to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, that's in the very same location. So even when we are considering the book of Hebrews, as we go to chapter 7, verse 1, we just came from chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, where the author of Hebrews was bringing out Father Abraham and his obedience and his trust and his patience in Lord as a example par excellence of one who will inherit the promises by virtue of his faith and his patience. And we move from that to this man Melchizedek. This is all part of this magnificent location. And David, of course, will conquer the city. In 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 10, the glory of Salem, which became Jerusalem, began with King David. It reached its zenith with Solomon. And then in the division of the nation of Israel. It began to fade away at that point in time. Uh, the city was ransacked many times in history. The temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman general Titus. And even as we're still pondering the significance of the location, we'll be reminded that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will also be a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 verse 2, John writes, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So, beloved, this city's location is significant. But what about the interpretation? And that's where back in our text, in verse 2 of Hebrews 7, the author adds, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Again, Salem, shalom, peace, well-being. 
Beloved, this is the place where righteousness flourishes and peace abounds. Earlier I had read in our scripture reading from this morning from Psalm 72, where in Psalm 72 verse 7, you read the words in Solomon's psalm. It's a a psalm that Solomon basically wrote asking God to give him wisdom to bring about righteousness and bring about peace as God's magistrate here on earth. And in Psalm 72 verse 7, he basically prays in his days, he's praying for himself, may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Beloved, this place, Salem, the interpretation is where righteousness flourishes and peace abounds. And these come together in Melchizedek. We'll say one other thing. The order is important. It's just not happenstance that he is first introduced as king of righteousness before he is introduced as king of peace. The order is important because in sinful humanity, We get it all backwards. People want, everyone wants peace without righteousness. Augustine said that all men, all women want peace. Even revolutionaries and warmongers seek and strive for a more peaceful condition of life without righteousness. But beloved, before a holy and righteous God, without righteousness there is no peace. That's why God said For example, through Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, 57 verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, Isaiah writes, for the wicked. So he is king of righteousness before he is king of peace. And even when you think of the example of Abraham, again, he first introduced, Abraham first is met or is met by the king of Sodom. Then he's interrupted by the king of Salem. And then In verse 21 through 24, the king of Sodom tells Abraham back in Genesis 14, look, take all the spoils, give the people, but take the spoils for yourself. You've earned it by your victory. And even at some level from a justice standpoint, we could say it would be right for Abraham to take the spoils for himself and his men. But in essence, Abraham tells the king of Sodom, go pound sand. I'm not going to take anything because in verse 22, Abraham tells the king of Sodom, I have made a vow to the Lord God Most High, to Yahweh El Elyon. Basically, Abraham was telling Sodom that, look, I want everyone to understand this great victory, this man in his 80s who became a general and won World War I. He wants everyone to understand the victory was put into his hand by God, not by a Sodomite or by any other men as well. And Even the contrast between Sodom and Salem back there, two kings, two kingdoms, two totally different types of men. Both are Canaanites. One serves God, one serves self. This is the spiritual versus the material. This is peace versus perversion. This is righteousness versus lawlessness. This is true worship cast against the backdrop of true wickedness. This is a believer and an unbeliever. This is light and darkness. This is the dove of peace intercepting the darkness of perversion. And it was, even as we would understand it, it is because Abraham drew close to the king of Salem that he was able to shun away and flee from the king of Sodom. Abraham was strengthened by the king of Salem so that he could resist the temptation from the king of Sodom. 
And beloved, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness before he is the king of peace. As I indicated, the first 10 verses focuses on the man, but the implication and the application the author will give, especially in verse 11 and forward, is it is because Jesus satisfies the righteousness of God that he brings peace. So in the same way as Melchizedek, so also Jesus must be the king of righteousness before he is the prince of peace, at least in our lives. And one more point just to note. Here in verse 1 at the end, or kind of in the middle of verse 1 of Hebrews 7, it says, as he, Abraham, was returning from the slaughter of the kings. So before he met the king of peace, he was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Point is, there's no pacifism here. That Abraham was a man of war when it was necessary, when it was right, when it was appropriate. And when we think of the dimension, the blessing of peace, the peace that comes from Christ is a supernatural peace. It's a peace the world cannot understand. It's uh, one thing, I mean, it's very easy to be at peace in times of outward bliss and harmony, but it takes a supernatural peace to prevail in the midst of great trouble and distress. I thought of the story that is told of a contest among artists where the artists were challenged to paint a picture that best depicts true peace. Some of the authors painted pictures of a tranquil scene of a meadow. Others painted beautiful sunset. But the artist that won the award painted a picture of a sweet little bird nestled in her nest, all you know, comfortable and secure, against the backdrop out on a tree branch against the backdrop of a thundering waterfall that was behind the bird. And beloved, the point here is this, is that Jesus gives the peace that a world can't understand. It's a peace in the midst of the storm, a peace that casts out fear. And so Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. And then the second exalted office, and we'll just do this briefly because this will be expanded upon in the rest of chapter 7 and forward, is that of a priest. This also is addressing the same central problem that we encounter from Genesis chapter 3 and 4, is how can I, a sinner, stand in the presence of a holy God? He is holy, I am not. I need someone to stand in between me and this holy God. Namely, I, you, we, man needs a priest. And that is God's answer. And in Genesis 14, verse 18, that's the first appearance of the word priest in the Bible. We've already seen in the earlier chapters of Genesis that both Abel and Noah offered sacrifices. Uh, Job, who predated chronologically Abraham, also offered up sacrifices. But what's fascinating is the first priest that we're introduced here is this mystery man coming out of nowhere. He's the nowhere man, no mother, no father, no lineage, no genealogy, no background, no credentials, no heritage. But he was the first person identified as a priest. Now, 
in Hebrews, we have already been introduced to Christ as the perfect high priest. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 1, also chapter 4. And what the author is doing us here with this meaty truth is he is instructing us in the deeper truths of the kind of priest that Jesus is, which is the kind of priest that you and I, that man, that woman, ultimately needs. You see, as king, he is just. As priest, he justifies. It's this truth, it's these two exalted offices that is behind what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Romans 3.26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What we read here in Hebrews 7, 1 and 2 is that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God who met Abraham and blessed him to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So Melchizedek, in his priestly role, he both gave and received. He gave a blessing to Abraham, and he received a tithe from Abraham. And I'm not going to cover this right now, because we'll cover the blessing of Melchizedek and the tithing of Abraham in verses 3 and forward. And what we will see when this is expanded is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is communal. It's mediatorial, it's universal, and it's eternal. And just briefly, I'm going to finish out here by bringing out the one aspect that the priesthood of Melchizedek is universal. This first priesthood in the pages of Scripture identified as such by God is for all the peoples. And this universal priesthood is greater than the national priesthood of the Levitical priests, of the Old Covenant priests, to the nation of Israel. And what you see is God is referred to as Most High God, the priest of the Most High God. In fact, in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, you'll see that Most High God, El Elyon, three times, three times. Now, Abraham's words in Genesis 14, 22, but actually before we do that, so Melchizedek is introduced by Moses in Genesis 14, verse 18, as a priest of the Most High God. Then Melchizedek twice references God Most High. And then Abraham, in verse 22, when he had said in the vernacular to the king of Sodom, go pound sand, what he actually said according to the biblical record is, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High. I have sworn to Yahweh El Elyon. Now, what we know is, what the author of Hebrews will tell us, is that clearly without any dispute, Abraham is the lesser and Melchizedek is the greater. So, the point is, when we understand the significance of Yahweh, of the name of God, the covenant name of God to the nation of Israel, why is it that the lesser uses the name Yahweh, but the greater Melchizedek doesn't use the name Yahweh? And what you do is, or what I did at least this week, is I did a study on El Elyon, on Most High, and it was absolutely fascinating. This title, this unique title of God appears only four times in Genesis, and all in those three verses in Genesis 18 through 20 and then verse 22. The next appearance of it is in Numbers 24 in Balaam's prophecy to Balak, who was the Gentile Moabite king. And then the next appearance of El Elyon, God Most High, is Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, where you read the words, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. 
And even the first song we sang today, Let the Nations Be Glad. This is all part of God's blessing, even as God is focusing on Abraham. The message of the salvation he brings is absolutely to the nation of Israel, which is the apple of God's eye, and it is for all the peoples. If you go to the prophets, there's only one prophet among all the prophets in the Old Testament that uses the name El Elyon, and it's Daniel. And Daniel is the one unique prophet that, to be sure, he preached to and taught, and it was for the benefit of the nation of Israel. But Daniel was a prophet that had much more emphasis on the nations and the Gentile than the other prophets. Or even if we go to the New Testament, Luke, the Gentile gospel author Luke, writing to Gentile Theophilus, is the only gospel author that records the fact that Gabriel, in his prophecy to Mary, referred to God as El Elyon, God Most High. And then the prophecy of Zacharias, Zacharias also used it. Luke is the only gospel author that recorded that Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, also referred to as El Elyon, God is El Elyon. And then he also uses it twice more in Acts. So, beloved, the whole point here is, in the pages of Scripture, from Genesis into the New Testament, this title of God, Elyon, is included and focused on the Gentiles. And the whole point here is, the reason why the lesser Abraham uses Yahweh and the greater Melchizedek doesn't is because the universal priesthood is greater than the national priesthood. And the truth is this, El Elyon is, in a sense, a greater name than Yahweh. It's a vaster name. It's an all-inclusive name. It is part of what even the Apostle John, in 1 John 2, 2, when he said the great words, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. John is saying that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the sins of Jewish people who trust in him, but also for those of the whole world. So, beloved, the first priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, is introduced as a universal priesthood for all the peoples. And it's introduced by a nowhere man with a no-credential man, a Gentile, a Canaanite, who's not part of the line of Father Abraham that we just left example of in Hebrews chapter 6. And next week, when we begin with the rest of chapter or, uh, verse 2 and going forward, we'll see... What's fascinating is the author of Hebrews finds as much significance in what is not said in Genesis 14 as with what is, is said about Melchizedek. Sometimes, beloved, the silence of Scripture is pregnant with meaning, and that is part of what the author will bring to us. This week I had wonderful, excellent fellowship with Tim Palin, the chairman of our elder board, Tuesday morning, Black Rock Coffee. And one of the elements, points of our fellowship was the fact, the recognition that, you know, it, we understand that we kind, that this whole very often statement by many Christians in Christian circles of taking scripture and saying, well, what does this mean to you? That we eschew that statement, that we shy away, we go away from that statement because we understand it's not what it means to me, that's irrelevant. The question is, what does this mean? What, what does God mean by that? So we understand that. And at the same time, we realize that we must never lose sight of the question is, what does this meaning mean in your life? What does this meaning mean in your life today and tomorrow and forever? And beloved, the meaning here is that the only people in the pages of Scripture that 
bore the office of both king and priest are Melchizedek and Jesus. And Melchizedek, in all his greatness, as is given to us in the first ten verses, merely here to point to the one who is far greater, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is the facsimile. Jesus is the reality. That's why we are Christians. We're not Melchizedekians, beloved. God's throne, the righteousness of God, God's throne is a flame with glory. And, dear friend, you have no hope. If you are not trusting Christ alone by faith alone, you have no hope of drawing near to God without being consumed by his holy wrath because you're a sinner. I'm, we are all born sinners in rebellion under deserving judgment of God. We need a priest. We need forgiveness. That's the problem the Bible deals with. And dear friend, the marriage of righteousness and peace in Melchizedek, dear beloved, it means the love of God rescues sinners from the wrath of God while vindicating the justice of God and exalting the glory of God. And as such, even springing from what we've read and learned in Hebrews already, we go beyond the veil right now and worship because we are wrapped in the holy flame-resistant righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel message. That is the good news. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truths in Scripture. Lord, thank you for the majesty and the wonder of this mighty shadow that is cast by this man, Melchizedek, across thousands of years, leapfrogging across millennia. But as mighty and as great as that shadow is, it pales comparing, compared to the substance, Lord Jesus, that fulfills itself, that finds its yes and fulfillment in you. Help us to remember these truths. Help us to be galvanized and strengthened. Help us to be valiant men as the priests were in the time of Isaiah. Help us to be valiant women as the mighty women of old were and are. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, we pray, we sing, we do all these things. Amen.